I sent out a little uh, email that I do to promote the services and this past weekend, I think on Thursday or so. And I told you I'd be preaching on a biblical perspective of aging. And I, I don't know, I might have kept a couple of hundred people away with that. Um, but at any rate, I've never preached a sermon before on old age. I don't intend to ever preach another one <laughs> before I even start. This is it. However, because of a certain uh, landmark in my own life, and because you rascals keep on reminding me of it every five minutes, I don't even want to come in here before the service or after, because everybody has to remind me of how old I'm going to be on Wednesday. I'm having a birthday on Wednesday. A birthday really is not a big deal. You don't get one day older because the clock ticked over. You get one day older. Right? Let's, let's think logically here for a moment. I'm not going to be one year older because the date changed on the count. I'm going to be one day older. Well, I can see I'm not talking to a room full of logicians here. So at any rate, we'll forget that one. Somebody says, age is an issue of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. And then, but I'll tell you what I'm figuring out right now at this point in my life. I really feel strange, something really strange. It just feels weird to me to be the same age as the old people. So I'm looking in, uh, doing a little research on the internet, and I ran across what they call a 17th century nun's prayer. Now, I don't usually quote the prayer of nuns, but this is a different day, so I'm going to. And she prayed a couple of hundred years ago, Lord, you know better than I know myself that I'm growing older and will someday be old. Keep me from the fatal habit of thinking I must say something on every subject and on every occasion. Release me from craving to straighten out everybody else's affairs. Make me thoughtful but not moody, helpful but not bossy. And with my vast store of wisdom, Lord, it seems a pity not to use it all. But thou knowest, Lord, I want a few friends left at the end. Keep my mind free from the recital of endless details. Let me read that again. I want everybody here to get that. Keep me free from the recital of endless details. Give me a wing to get to the point. <laughs> Seal my lips on my aches and pains. They are increasing. And my love of rehearsing them is becoming sweeter as the years go by. She wrote, I dare not ask for grace enough to enjoy the tales of others' pains, but help me to endure them with patience. I dare not ask for improved memory, but for a growing humility and a lessening cocksuredness when my memory clashes with the memories of others. Teach me the glorious lesson that occasionally I may be mistaken. <laughs> Keep me reasonably sweet. I do not want to be a saint, Lord. Some of them are so hard to live with. And a sour old person is one of the crowning works of the devil. 
Give me the ability to see good things in unexpected places and talents in unexpected people, and give me, oh Lord, the grace to tell them so. <laughs> so that was a wise nun, wasn't it? I heard a story not long ago about a back, you know, back in the 1800s, they had the medicine shows. And the medicine show would come to town like in that picture, and they would have a covered wagon. He'd have a bunch of artifacts in it that he sold. And the medicine show man would, he would uh, come usually to a small town. He would get up, and it was a little fold-out stage on that thing usually. He would play the banjo. He would sing. He would dance. He'd tell a few jokes. And a crowd would gather around. And then once he got his crowd up, he'd start trying to sell. And he had all this merchandise. And almost always, his merchandise was a, a, a bunch of... Uh, bottles of patent medicine, worthless pills, stuff like that. And so on this particular occasion, this guy got up. He had a bottle. He called it the elixir of life. And he got up and he told the people, you need to buy this. And he put the hard sell on them. He said, I take it every day and I'm 390 years old. And a fellow in the crowd went over to his assistant and said, I don't believe him. He's not that old. How old is he? And his assistant said, well, I don't really know. I've only been with him for 140 years. <laughs> Somebody wrote, time goes, you say? Ah, no. Time stays. We go. Boy, words of such wisdom, huh? Let me tell you what some people have done past 80 years of age. At 80, Goethe wrote, the Faust. At 82, Tennyson wrote Crossing the Bar. At 84, Gladstone was the Prime Minister of England and delivered his greatest messages to the British Parliament. At 85, Verdi wrote Ava Maria. At 87, Michelangelo climbed a scaffold to the dome of St. Peter's for months on end, every day for months. He's 87 years old. He lies on his back and he paints the dome, one of the most famous art depictions in the world. At 87, Vladimir Horowitz was playing piano concerts and Arthur Rubinstein was conducting the world's greatest symphony orchestras. John Wesley preached up until the week before he died at 88. George Mueller preached his last sermon at 93. I'm going to go for that record. And then today, David Jeremiah is preaching at 85, John MacArthur at 83. Ed Young Sr. pastors the largest Baptist church in America with 30,000 in attendance, and he's 87 years old. Charles Stanley recently retired. My friend Herb Rawlings uh, leads the Rawlings Foundation, and they have... Uh, 16 youth camps around the world, and Herb travels about 100,000 miles a year overseeing youth camps. So because you're old, it doesn't mean you can't keep going. I don't know how many people want to, but I hope you want to, and I hope I can stir up and inspire you today to keep going in your life to, as my little bracelet says here that I wear, and many of you do, to press on in faith, to keep serving God as long as you have breath to do so.
My scripture today is in Psalm number 71. Psalm 71, and I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read just a few verses of the psalm. It's 24 verses total, but uh, we won't read them all. I'll just go with you through some of them. If you'd stand, please, and look at God's Word with me. It's Psalm number 71 and verse number 1. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be put to confusion. Lord, I put my trust in you, and don't let me be confused. And then I go down to verse 5. For thou art my hope, O Lord God. Thou art my trust from my youth. In verse 9, cast me not off in the time of my old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. For mine enemies speak against me, and they that lay wait for my soul Take counsel together. O God, be not far from me, verse 12. O my God, make haste for my help. And then in verse 17, O God, thou hast taught me from my youth. And hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not. Until I have shown thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Now righteousness also, O God, is very high. Who hast done great things, O God, who is like unto thee? Thou, which hast shown me great and sore troubles, shall quicken me again and shall bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Thank you, and you may be seated. A biblical perspective on aging. And this is the psalm for aged people. And you may want to study it a little bit more when you get home. Now, most of you here would not refer to yourself as being aged. But let me tell you, you'll get there one of these days unless something worse happens, won't you? And so everybody here ought to be interested in what I'm saying. Many of you have aged parents. God's Word here might help you to help them and be a blessing to them in their life. First, I want you to notice with me, and I have three simple points, one about the past, one about the present, and one about the future. Number one, looking back, looking back, the psalmist sees the faithfulness of God in the past. Look in your Bible, verse number five. Thou art my hope, O Lord. Thou art my trust from my youth. And so here he is, an aged man, and he's looking back, and he said, Lord, I've been trusting you from my youth, maybe from my childhood. We don't know what he means by youth, but I've been trusting you, Lord, for a long, long time, my whole life. And then if you will go down with me to verse 17, and you look at it, and again, he says, thou hast taught me from my youth. He's looking backward over his life, and he sees where he has been serving the Lord for decades and decades, from the time he was either a child or maybe a teenage lad. But he says, Lord, I have been serving you. I've been trusting you. You've been teaching me ever since I was a child. And 
There are other places in the Bible that say the same thing. You know, when you begin to look for it, your Bible's full of admonitions and encouragement and teaching about old age and about aging. And so we look in Psalm number 37, and in verse number 25, a very well-known verse, I have been young, and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. I've been old or young, and now I'm old, but I've never seen you fail, Lord, looking back across my life. Boy, you ought to mark that one in your Bible, ladies and gentlemen. You may need that one of these days. Psalm number 90 talks about, Lord, you are our dwelling place through all of our generations. No matter what age we are, we keep looking back, and we see God's good hand upon us. Benjamin Disraeli was the prime minister of England, and he, he was a great man politically. People look to him with great, great respect. He's one of the great historical figures. If you've ever read much history, you've seen the name Disraeli. And Disraeli is summing up his life as an old man, and he wrote some of the saddest words I've ever heard. This man who was the ruler, literally, of England, for a long period of time, summed up his life in this way. My youth was a blunder. My manhood, a struggle. My old age, a regret. I can't think of a sadder commentary on one's life than that, can you? My youth was a blunder. My manhood, a struggle and my old age, a regret. Now, if you've lived for the Lord, though you haven't lived a perfect life, I can tell you, you don't have to go into old age and look back and say, everything about my life is a regret. In fact, one of the blessings of some age, and I'm looking for them, but the blessings of age is one of the greatest is to be able to look back and see God's hand directing you Listen to me. When you're looking through the windshield, you don't see what God is doing. You only see much of what God is doing in your life through the rearview mirror. You don't see God's hand when you begin a project. You see God's hand after you've been in the project for a long time. For the first few years when I got here, I kept wondering, did God really call me here to start this church? Did God really, does he really want me in this little dinky town? I came from Indianapolis and Fort Worth. And as I began to look in the rearview mirror, I began to say, no, this is exactly where God wants me. He led me here. You know, Abraham sent his servant on a long, long journey in Genesis chapter 24. He sent the servant. It took him months of travel to get to where he would get back to his native family and find a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. And he made this long trek, and he prays and asked God. He said, now I'm in the land, and I am going to ask you to direct me to the woman that you want me to find for Abraham to marry his son. And he had prayed a prayer. And the prayer was, 
I'm going to go, and I'm going to go to a well, and they were scarce. I'm going to start watering my camels and the, and the animals. And, Lord, the woman that you want my master's son to marry, she is going to volunteer to water the animals. And so he went to the well and was watering the animals. And you remember the story of how Rebecca came out and said, Sir, I can see you've had a long, long journey, and you're weary. I'll help you water the animals today. And then listen to what he said. In Genesis 24 and 27, I, being in the way, the Lord led me. I, being in the way, the Lord led me. And so 53 and a half years ago now, I came to Florence Everything we had rattling around in the front half of a rider truck. We couldn't even fill up the truck. And we moved here, and Norma and I planted a church. She was six months pregnant with Tori. God had led me to Fort Worth, Texas. When I moved to Fort Worth, I wasn't particularly looking for a wife, but one day I was playing the piano and looked, and there was this gorgeous-looking Texas rose sitting there on about the fifth row, and I went back and said, hello, I'm Bill Monroe. I want to get to know you. And her mother said, I want you to date that nice boy. He's got to be a good boy. He's a gospel singer. Oh, did her mother know? (laughs) And uh, at any rate, I finally convinced her and talked her into it, and she went out with me, and we began our relationship together. And on this Saturday... 56 years ago this Saturday, we stood at the altar, First Baptist in Fort Worth, and we got married. We got married. And uh, boy, how I thank God for her. Now, at that time when we got married, I told her, I said, you know what? I, the last thing I ever want to do on this earth is be a preacher, but you ought to understand I think the Lord's going to make me do it. And I told her, I warned her, and she married me anyhow. And you know what? I didn't know that looking through the front windshield, but in the rear view mirror, I married one of the best pastor's wives God could ever have given me. And then, thank you. And then he gave us three wonderful children. And praise God, they're all sitting here today. And their spouses and them are trying to raise their kids for the Lord. Eight grandkids, they're here today too. How blessed I am. See, in the, looking through the front mirror or the windshield, I didn't know that, but in the rear view mirror now, God has blessed me so much with a wonderful family. And we started the church in the old theater building and stayed there for two and a half years. That was the testing of God, I'll tell you. November 1969, 12 building programs later, 12 building programs later, I look in the rearview mirror, and God led me all the way. And the staff that he gathered around me, men and women, earlier I was going to write out the names and say, Thank you, Jane, and thank you, Clayton, and thank you, Chris, and thank you, and thank you, and thank you. 
And the list got so long, I said, it's going to take half my message. And so I, I, I didn't write them down. But boy, God has blessed me with a wonderful, wonderful staff of people, talented people, competent people, but most of all, good people. Not perfect people, but righteous people, people who want to serve the Lord. And then we started the school. It's now in its 50th year. Boy, when we started at school, I had no idea what it was going to do. But I can look into the rear view mirror now and see 50 years. You know what? I've had a great blessing. And recently I thought about it. I've had the privilege of shaking 1,400 plus hands of young people who graduated from our school. Boy, not many men get to do that. And to God be the glory, and I thank Him for it today. And then the TV ministry came, and then media, and now we touch thousands of people a week outside these walls. And the sports ministry, about 300 families we touch. Our you and our addictions ministry. And to see the salvation work of God and all through the years, the people coming down the aisle and trusting the Lord and baptizing now all these people. I had no idea all that looking through the front. You don't see what God's going to do until you've served Him and you look back to the past. Now, if you don't start, if you don't start, you won't have a past, will you? So you've got to start. And when you do, my just the things that God has done for all of us. And, and I've, I've been fortunate to be able to, to lead in that. Nine families out of our congregation on the mission field today. All of that to the glory of God, to the blessing of God. And I, I didn't see it at the beginning. But looking back, I see the goodness of God. I love that hymn that we sing so often. Oh, God, our help in ages past. God, our help in ages past and our shelter from the storm. And I want you to so live your life that one day when you're my age, you'll be able to look back and say, Oh, God, our help in ages past and how you've led me through the storms of life and how you've blessed me. That's what the psalmist is saying right here in this passage. But he not only looks back, but notice with me, he looks around. And in looking around, he, see, he has confidence that God's going to continue to keep his hand upon his life. He's still an active man. I don't know how old he is. The Bible doesn't say. He doesn't indicate. We don't even know who it is that wrote Psalm 71. If you look there, there's not a description that says David like it does in most of them. But the previous one was written by David. And many of the scholars believe that Psalm 71 was just a continuation of that. You know, your Bible wasn't divided into chapters and verses until back in the Middle Ages sometimes. So very probably this is David writing as an older man, but we can't be sure of that. It's not that important, but, but you need to know it. And looking around, whoever he is, he has confidence not only looking back, he thanks God for his blessings, but looking around... He has confidence in God's blessing in the present. The reason I think it was maybe David is he talks about his enemies. And David had a lot of enemies. He had political enemies, and he had enemies who were trying to take over the country, armies that were, were attacking them all around and so on. 
And here he is, he's an aged man, but he still has enemies. Because if you move, you're going to create friction, aren't you? And so David still has his enemies here. Look in verse 4. He describes them. He says, deliver me, O God, out of the hand of the wicked. So his enemies are wicked people. Out of the hand of the unrighteous. His enemies are unrighteous people. And he says, deliver me out of the hands of the cruel man. So he he describes his enemies as wicked, unrighteous, and cruel. And then look in verse 2. He prays for deliverance from them. He knows that whatever his enemies may be saying or doing, that God can give him deliverance. And so look at verse 2. Deliver me in thy righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline thine ear unto me and save me, Lord. And then down in verse 4, he says, he continues that prayer. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and the cruel man. And then look down in verse number 10. He continues, Mine enemies speak against me. They that lie wait for me or for my soul take counsel together. And then he prays for protection. Go back to verse 3. Lord, you're my strong habitation, dwelling place, whereunto I may continually resort. You have given commandment to save me. You are my rock and you are my fortress. And if you look in verse 7, he says, God, and you are my strong refuge. And so David, or the author of this passage here, just totally depends upon God for the opposition that, he may, that he's experiencing in his life at that time. And in verse 10, he says, my enemies have tested my faith. Mine enemies speak against me, and they lie in wait, and they speak against me, he says. And in verse 11, they say, God has forsaken you. God has forsaken you. And so his enemies are attempting to even destroy his faith. Do you know today, ladies and gentlemen, there are enemies all around you that are attempting to destroy your faith, that are telling you that God has forsaken you? You know that in this culture that we live in, your faith is being attacked virtually every day. If you turn on the media in whatever form, if you get on social media, depending on what you're reading, depending on who your friends are, you're going to be pulled down in your faith constantly. I was turned on after we got home from church last Sunday night. I turned on the the Super Bowl, and I was watching part of the ball game, and then the halftime show came on. And I was doing something else. I wasn't even really paying any attention to it. I saw this woman dressed in red singing and all these grotesque-looking figures dressed in white, kind of a New Age-type feel to the thing. I wasn't paying much attention to it. And then, wow, and I thought, did she say that? Did she say that as vile as it could be? And I thought, man, every Christian everywhere in this country today is constantly being besieged with voices that are testing our faith that God is not real, that the Bible is not true, that God has forsaken us. You know, we have enemies that are not just people. The voice of cancer has come to many of you. Mo is fighting it here. 
And the voice of cancer will say to you, if you'll listen to it, God has forsaken you. And you've got to have your Bible and you've got to come back and say, oh no, God hasn't forsaken me because I'm dealing with cancer. And some of you have lost your spouses this year. Is spouses a good word? Spouses is not spouses. It's got to be spouses. You lost your spouse. And you know what the voice of loneliness will say? God's forsaken you. A woman called me the other day, and she was so lonely. She had lost her husband this year, and her heart was so broken, and she's fighting for her faith. Has God forsaken me? And your friends or your family can let you down. And how many people, even members of our congregation, are in some nursing home room today, and they're lonely, and they, the voice of loneliness will say, Nobody cares anything about you. God has forsaken you. Oh, no, my friend. Go back to Psalm 71 and fill your soul with it. His response, notice what his response is in verse number 14. Well, I will hope continually, and I will yet praise thee more and more. Take your pen out now and circle that word thee there. I will praise thee more and more. So he says, I'm not going to listen to the voice of cancer. I'm not going to listen to the voice of being alone in the world and forsaken by my friends. I'm not going to listen to the voices that tell me there's no God that cares for me and loves me. No, he says, I'm not going to do that. I am going to focus upon thee, meaning upon God. And so circle that word right there. I will praise thee more and more. And when my heart is filled with, with a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I'm meditating on His love, when I'm focused upon the things of God, then those other voices will be crowded out, and I'll be able to deal with my life. Looking back, He sees the faithfulness of God. Looking around, he has confidence that God is going to give him deliverance and protection, and he has hope in the Lord. And looking forward to the future, look at verse 5. For thou art my hope, O Lord, thou art my trust from the time of my youth. And if you'll go again over to verse number 14, I will hope continually, and yet I will praise thee more and more. Notice how he prays in verse 18. Go down there. And so in the light of having hope in you, Lord, now I'm old, I'm gray-headed, but Lord, forsake me not until I have shown thy strength unto this generation. Now I'm the older man, but Lord, help me to show who you are to my children and my grandchildren. And to the people of this generation, as you give me opportunity, and Lord, help me to show your power to everyone that is to come. And he's so focused upon the future. He may be old, but he has goals, and he has plans, and he has a vision. I want to show your strength and your power to all this generation that's coming along behind me, Lord. I like Psalm number 92. 
and verse number 14, it says, they shall bear fruit in old age. They shall bear fruit in old age. And so just because you're getting some age on you, my friend, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you can't be fruitful, that you can't produce souls, that you can't be a witness, a light, as long as God leaves you here. Don't ever think that you're over the hill and you can't serve God. God will use you regardless of your age. He wants to do that. My mind goes to a man named Caleb in the Bible. And if you will remember in Numbers chapter 13, 40 years before, or at the end of the, at the beginning of the wilderness sojourn, Moses chose one man out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he said, I want you to act as spies. I want you to go spy out the promised land that God has promised us, one man from each tribe. And I want you to go and come back and give a report. And so the men went out, and they went over into the promised land. Well, the representative of the tribe of Judah was a man named Caleb, Caleb. And so Caleb went with the 12, and they spied out the land. They came back, and they stood before the people of God and Moses, and they said, here's our report. And 10 of those men stood up and said, we can't go into the land. We can't conquer the land. While we saw cities that were walled up to heaven, and there are giants there. In fact, they said, we were like grasshoppers in the sight of those giants. Well, let me tell you, that tells me they had a big problem. If you think you're a grasshopper, you're not going to get very far. You're going to always feel inferior and insecure if you think of yourself as a grasshopper, aren't you? So I don't want any grasshopper religion. And so the 10 came, oh, no, we can't go into the land. We're going to be defeated. There's, those people are too strong and too powerful for us. Two men, though, said, nope. We need to go on in. God has promised us that land, and it doesn't matter who they are. God is greater. We're going into the land. We're going to conquer the land. You know who those two were? Joshua and Caleb. And do you know what? Over the next 40 years, the entire generation of people died because of their unbelief. God said, you're not going to even ever step your foot in the land because this minority of people here, or this majority of people, don't want to trust God. So every one of them died in the wilderness except two people. Who were the two people that went into the land? Joshua and Caleb. Now, they're in the land, and they've conquered nearly all the land. I'm, I'm skipping so many details, but I want you to get it, the, the big picture here. So now they're in the land. They've been there for a while. But there's a few places in the land that have not yet been conquered. And one of those places is a city named Hebron. And it's on the top of a mountain, the highest mountain in the area. And it, there, it's, there's a sheer rock wall going up to it, I'm told. And so it was nearly impossible for anybody to go there and conquer that city. And Joshua said to the people, well, there's one more place we've just got to conquer. It's that mountain right there with Hebron on top of it. And who steps up? 85-year-old Caleb, and here's his words, give me that mountain. 
And do you know what happened? You know the story. He went in and he took that mountain. And Caleb became one of the, or Hebron became one of the principal cities. Forty years of putting up with those unbelieving hard heads out there in the desert had not dimmed his vision, had not diminished his hopes or his goals. Forty years later, he is still taking territory for the Lord. He had goals, he had plans, and he had vision. And it kept him going, and God used him. Listen to me, older person. The tragedy of retirement is that people retire from everything, not just their job. They retire from goals and plans and visions and believing that God still has some work for them to do. If you don't have any goals today and you're a retiree, let me tell you, you go home today and you get you a piece of paper and write down some things and start making some plans that you're going to do for God and for other people. Read your Bible through three times this year instead of once. If you're retired, you have time. Fill your mind and your soul so full of God's Word that when problems come along, you'll instinctively go there. Pick up that phone and call somebody that's worse off than you. They're not hard to find. Come over here to the church and say, give me some names of some people that I can go see that need somebody to just love on them a little bit today. Get your focus off of yourself. In thee will I praise, he said. A man named Lord Byron is a famous name in English literature. If you took English literature, you know Byron, who Lord Byron is. And Lord Byron was the, uh, he was the darling of British society. He was a man of the arts and the letters. And Lord Byron was a guy who, I mean, he was a dashing man in his personality, and he was wealthy. He had it all. Man, when he walked into the room, the, the ladies all looked, and, and the men looked at him with envy sometimes. He was famous, and he was a poet, and he wrote a poem that you probably read in English literature. It's one of our most famous. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flower and the fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Man, is that pessimistic? Let me read that again. It's so dark. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flower and the fruit of love is gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Does anybody remember the title of that poem? You know what the title of that poem is? On my 36th birthday. That's the title of that poem. On my th- and he died a couple of years later. See, there's nihilism. There's no hope. There's darkness. There's a man whose mind is, and he was a wicked man. And it was so covered in sin. He's 36 years old, but life has no hope for him. He has no goals, no plans. Compare that to Adoniram Judson. Judson grew up in New England, was the first Baptist missionary 
to go overseas during the colonial days, 1750 or 60 or something like that. And Judson went to Burma. And Burma was a Muslim country, steeped in Muslim darkness. And he went there, he and his wife, alone. Before it was over, he had buried three different wives who had died because of the hardship. And he was arrested. And he's sitting in a Burmese prison in filth and darkness. And he talks about the rats running up and down over his body. And he writes back home. And he tells them to pray for him. And then he says, the future, ah, the future, it's as bright as the promises of God. Boy, who has the better perspective, Lord Byron or Adoniram Judson? The future is as bright as the promises of God. Yeah, you may be going through trials. Life can hurt. Life is suffering. Just get that and you won't be disillusioned. But on the other hand, the future for the Christian as bright as the promises of God. I heard about an old man who was 89, got married. He called the realtor. And he said, I need to buy a house. Make sure it's near an elementary school. I said, that's optimism there, buddy. That's optimism. That's the, that's the right attitude, isn't it? Make sure that's by school. We've got plans. <laughs> Look with me back in Psalm 71 for just a second. Verse 20. Here's the greatest assurance of all that I have and you can have and every believer can have. Thou, Lord, which has shown me great and sore troubles, you will quicken me. Quicken means to make alive again. You will quicken me again. And you will bring me up again. Again, twice he says it. You will quicken me again, and you will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about resurrection. He's talking about dying. He said, you who have shown me and taken me through great and sore troubles, you're going to make me alive again after I die. And you're going to bring me up out of the grave, out of the depths of the earth. Hope not only for this life and the present, hope not only for the future, but hope even into eternity after we're dead and gone from this earth. God's going to raise us back up again. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, please.